0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel Paris, and I'm the host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm pleased today to have as my guests Gary Saul Morson, professor of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Northwestern University in Chicago, and Morton Shapiro, professor of economics at Northwestern and, for his sins, president of said university. They are the authors of one of the most ambitious and interesting books that I have read in a while, Sense and Sensibility, What Economics Can Learn from the Humanities. It was uh, published last year by Princeton and is now out in paperback with a new pre- uh, preface by the authors. Professors, welcome.
2: Thank you, Daniel. It's wonderful to be on.
0: Yes, thanks for having us. Uh, I, I said your book was ambitious because you go beyond the standard effort for which there is already a somewhat rich literature that tries to bridge the gap between these two disciplines, economics and humanities, and suggest, uh, from within rock-throwing distance of the University of Chicago, no less, that economics has something to learn from the humanities. That's uh, that's quite a challenge. Uh, can you can you elaborate on that?
2: Well, so I was looking at me, Daniel. So maybe I should go first, since I am the economics professor but because Saul and I have taught an undergraduate class together. and in, in January, it'll be our ninth time, Saul, I think. Uh, and this is really sort of, it came directly out of that class. Um, so he knows a lot. He's, he already knew a scary amount of economics, but after nine years of writing and teaching with me, he knows it. I know more. He knows more. And I, I don't wow. know if I've learned as much Russian literature as he learned economics, but I, I stepping back, I think we would, one of the things I love about Saul is, you know, the view is sort of, okay, he's this humanist, this brilliant literature professor, and I'm an economist, applied econometrician, and, you know, that I defend economics and he hates it. But in fact, he's usually the one in a lot of our book talks who, who says he loves economics. He likes the fact that we, you know, we're a field that still believes in facts, not alternative facts that, you know, he loves the fact that Saul, you always say that we're trying to make a world a better place, even if our policies could be, we believe, more effective. Uh, you love efficiency. You're always arguing efficiency. Don't throw away resources. And you love Saul. You always say that you know, we always focus on tradeoffs, right. whereas you say in the humanities, sometimes it's uh, a free lunch. So I, I think that we Humanists came from not good this at understanding the concept of trade-offs. Well, you told that funny story. I think it's in the book, right? That you were your fellow hum, humanist uh, humanities chairs and somebody said, should we put the extra resources into uh, improving the financial situation of non-tenure line faculty or should we take the money for ourselves? And, and what did one of your colleagues say?
1: Said we reject the false premise that resources are limited. <laughs> Only a humanist would say that. You can't
2: make that up. So, you know, I, I think, Daniel, as you know, I mean, we start from – and you don't have to ask me how much I love economics. It's my field, right? So, you know, we start from that. But, but, you know, as we've taught this course for now almost a decade, we've evolved into thinking more that, you know, if economics opened itself up more to say – The other allied social sciences, you know, history and philosophy and anthropology and sociology, right, and the like that, you know, there's evidence that we present actually in the preface of the paperback that Saul might want to comment on that. Economists work on issues, Daniel. So uh, a number of us work on the distant past, but they don't really learn that much from historians. And right, Saul, they they might work on a cycle of poverty, but do they ever cite anybody in anthropology or sociology? And they care deeply in microeconomics, my field, about human behavior. But do they know anything about the psychology literature? Right, Saul? And, And that's what we sort of say. You know, forgetting even the main thing is literature, learn from literature, which we're going to talk about next half hour or so. But how about starting with the easy ones, the social sciences that are sitting there right next to economics, right, Saul? Yeah,
1: if you have an economic model that is mathematical, as most of them are, you can't mathematicize culture. And so the assumption is that in the same conditions, people everywhere will behave in the same way. But Any anthropologist or sociologist will will tell you that values differ and habits differ, um, cultural norms differ, and that you can't expect the same behavior in in the same circumstances. But to acknowledge that, economists would have to do something soft, something they couldn't um, mathematicize, and they're reluctant to do that.
2: And so is there any evidence that we discovered in reaction after the hardcover came into print about any any evidence when we say that economists don't truly embrace other fields uh, as opposed to what other fields embracing economics?
1: Well, you came across a survey, as I recall, where uh, experts in each field were asked Do they have anything to learn from other fields?
2: And these are American American professors, professors, and I'm not necessarily professors at American colleges and universities. And what did they ask them in that question? Well,
1: are there other fields you think people in your field could benefit, could have something to learn from dealing with other fields? And 79% of uh, psychologists said they did. And generally, if you go through field after field, you've got 72,
2: 71, 73 percent of sociologists. So what about economics? Who who came in last about? And this is a simple thing, Dan. You think if you say, can you learn anything from another field? Almost everybody. I'm amazed that only 79 percent of psychologists said, sure, I would think it would be everybody. But what percentage? of economists saw. It turned out to be 42%. Think about that. That means 58% of economists. Of economics professors. professors. These are professors in higher ed. You would think if there's any group of economists who would be more open to learning from fellow faculty, it would be economists. 58%
1: think they have nothing to learn. And then if I just go on.
2: One last thing, Daniel. And then, who are the fifty-eight, the forty-two percent who said they can learn from a field? What's the field that they thought was well, easiest to learn from?
1: Almost all of them said finance, which most of us wouldn't think of as particularly different. Right. Mechanisms. So
2: we're thinking sociology, We're thinking philosophy, psychology. So if the forty-two percent mainly think it's finance, which is a version of mathematical economics, you know, then, then it's even worse than it seems. So what do you think about that, Dan? You studied at Williams where I was at the same time as you and you studied. I'm sure you took some econ and you certainly were a Russian literature major. What do, what do you think about that in how insular economists are by this survey.
0: Well, it, it's interesting because I went from one extreme to another of uh, Russian history, modern Russian history to finance. And uh, I found that it was frighteningly different, uh, you know, uh, ends of the barbell in terms of, of cultural norms, which is why your book was particularly um, uh, of interest to me in trying to, to uh, get people to understand that there's a great deal, as you, you know, kind of refer to it as wisdom and good judgment in the great literature that can be applied in economics. One thing that struck me, however, is that, you know, in kind of drawing a straw man about the finance and economics people, you also did the same thing. And I was hoping you could elaborate on this with the behavioral economists, because for those of us who came to finance from the soft side, there aren't very many of us. Nevertheless, we think of the behavioral economists as kind of the good guys because they're offsetting the mathematical, uh, rigid uh, math of, of uh, traditional economics and finance and trying to inject some humanity. But you have a, a quite an interesting take on that.
2: Yeah, I'll leave it to Saul. And he and I debate this a little bit. And, and I, I think in retrospect, you know, when you write a book and, you, you know, we've done so many book talks all over the world and interviews and reviews and stuff like that. A number of people have noticed that, Daniel, we were really hard on behavioral economics. And um, you know, in re- I, I think we wrote it. Now we've been a little easier on it. I, I think the point was that neither of us really think it's the answer. And when we first pitched this idea about the book, how the humanities can, uh, you know, what economics can learn from the humanities, people said like, it's behavioral economics. So I think we went over a little backward. I don't know if you'd agree with this. Yeah, you know, no, I
0: little, get. I, 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 I can see how agree, that. But
2: you know, we, we sort of felt like okay, why write this book? You have behavioral economics. Behavioral economics is a step forward, I would say, and I think Saul would agree, but it's not what we're talking about. It's a very different approach to economics, and it's typically not the way we see it, sort of what we have in mind about learning. So Saul, do you want to say anything about that?
1: Yeah, think of it this way. I mean, behavioral economics shows that although people try to make – uh, the choice, the rational choice to their most greatest advantage. There's an irrationality built into it, how people make choices. But they're still trying. The model is still people try to make the most rational choices. Their their calculation, calculating mechanism goes astray in various predictable ways, which it, which I'm sure is true. But has nothing to do, for example, with um, culture. You still there's still no room in behavioral economics for culture. Right? It, it just doesn't work. Um, There's no room for, you know, more complex ethical questions. And you can see this, by the way, when behavioral economists, you know, write columns, giving people advice on on their relationships. And it's laughably Shallow.
0: So I, I would actually, in, in, in your defense, I would say that, you know, as a practical matter, if uh, rational actor theory and traditional finance is a little bit too uh, the Borg-like or Dr. Spock-like and uh, just not realistic, behavioral finance is a little bit too much kind of Archie Bunker-like. It, it is, it's too negative. Uh, they don't actually come out and say that everyone always makes mistakes all the time, but uh, a superficial reading of behavioral finance, you would come away with, with that conclusion. And you could just kind of reduce and say, listen, traditional finance is kind of almost too positive and, and or economics too positive and behavioral finance is almost too negative. And what I like about what you're suggesting is, is ejecting in the humanities is, as, as you said, Saul, you know, you, you've identified in the book, three things that you really think that the humanities can help in economics, a culture Telling stories and ethical ethical questions, and you literally list those things, and you, you started touching on them. But you know how? how let, let's get to the the good stuff. Uh, not just how people are irrational or rational, but but what culture can uh, add to people thinking about how economic systems function and enrich it through culture, through telling of stories, and through addressing the big the big ethical questions.
1: Well, uh, morning. Why don't you tell the story about giving advice to the Egyptians, the development advice, that would be a good uh...
2: Well, you know, uh, Daniel, one of my fields never my principal field, but one of my fields was uh, development economics and as you remember from your undergraduate days at Williams College you probably knew the Center for Development Economics, which is a program that's developed in the early 60s, still going very strong and it's for economists from countries in the developing world, they get a 12 month intense master's experience with a lot of statistics and math and theory and all that, then they go back and they become you know, heads of central banks and ministers of finance and all that stuff. So in conjunction with that, I I was always interested in development economics. In the beginning of the book, we tell the stories of how we came to believe that uh, economics is leaving a lot on the table, if you will. And I told the story that Saul, I think, just referred to. I was um, doing some work. Uh, I helped write a book on successful development in in, uh, in Africa with a group of Williams faculty in the 80s. So I spent a fair amount of time going back and forth to Africa in conjunction with that and similar projects. And, you know, I just, you know, the, the basic idea was, you know, what do you do? You get the prices right. Um, and what that means is you get rid of government subsidies and you let the prices float. And I think, um to market clearing prices and I, I think saul was alluding to i was in cairo in the early 80s they had just gotten rid of those uh, subsidies and there were riots in the street and some people died and then some people starved and you know but for economists it was well that's not really us that's not our field so we're going to just recommend you let the prices float to market clearing levels And you do that whether you're in Egypt or I was also in Sudan and I was in Tanzania and Malawi and Kenya and Liberia and Nigeria. You know, and these are very different countries. Right. And, you know, the idea that some set of rules will lead to economic growth and prosperity. I think the intentions were great. The IMF, World Bank and and others. But the the limited success i think was indicative of the fact that the economists were looking at things much too narrowly i think that's where you story yeah or
1: if you think of um, i remember yeah. when the soviet uh, empire collapsed and western you know economists rushed in with their advice giving pretty much the same advice to all the countries of eastern europe and to russia mm-hmm. uh, and it was you know it was very clear to me that The Russians are very different, even from other East Europeans. The basic assumptions about how things ought to work um, that we take for granted, Russians would not have, and therefore you you first have to acculturate people to what would be a capitalist um, economy, a market economy, uh, in a way that, let's say, you might not have to acculturate Czechs, who would have a long um, history before, you know, communism. Um, So, you know, it. I just held my hand and said, this this isn't going to work. They don't know Russians. Uh, and, you know, of course, it, it didn't work. We wound up with, you know, the oligarchs controlling a lot of resources and still not having anything that really resembles a market economy. Um, no property rights, for example, um, still in, in, in Russia. Uh, and that's something that what you would take into it. let's first have a situation where there are secure property rights let's set up that first get people to understand that then we can move on to if you see what I mean
0: right so let's let's kind of uh, shift a little bit uh, to what I think are uh, you know two of the really most powerful statements about um, using literature to help policymakers or econo- uh, economists, uh, think about the impact of their policies on uh, individuals and economies, and and the real great historical re-reading is of Adam Smith who is known for one thing, and then you uh, spend a great deal of time showing that he's in many ways a far more complex figure uh, and that he is himself trying to bridge the gap between these two disciplines prior to either of them really existing as such. And uh, it's a a wonderful uh, treatment of Adam Smith and, and fresh for me, I'm afraid I have to acknowledge I only knew one half of the story.
2: Well, it's not surprising, Daniel, because he's been sort of sanitized, right? And, you know, one of the themes of the book goes back to Isaiah Berlin's distinction between a fox who's open to a whole bunch of ideas and doesn't think that he or she, you know, has uh, figured out the rules for civilization, whether it's development or morality or whatever. There's no single
1: formula for everything. Right.
2: Or or, uh, a hedgehog you know, uh, you know, the hedgehog is the person who is the single formula and the fox is open to many different ideas. And, you know, Adam Smith is the perfect person, right? So that who's yeah. started, who's a fox his whole life. It was a fox, but they defined him as, as a, as a, you know, ideologue hedgehog. And of course, as you said, Daniel, modern economics started in 1776 with the with the publication of a brilliant book, Wealth of Nations, which I've had the great joy of teaching a couple of times throughout my career. Um, and as you said, people don't really focus on a book that he wrote 17 years earlier, which was a theory of moral sentiments. And when they do focus on it, Daniel, it's I like sort of, and maybe Saul can talk a little bit about what he wrote in, 19, in 1759. They said, oh, that was early Smith. He, he refuted that. That's when he talked about people were – by their nature, not necessarily rational, that they cared about much more than self-interest. And then he wrote, you know, Invisible Hand, and, you know, Markets Reign Supreme, Laissez-faire, and all that. Um, but of course, that's called the Adam Smith problem, right? right? So all that, you know, how do you reconcile a book that was really much a very different book than what people identify nowadays with Adam Smith's Wealth and Nations? Uh, but the reality was he thought of them saw as companion books. Not as a book he outgrew, which is the way, if anybody acknowledges it, most economists say Adam Smith made a mistake in 1759 and he outgrew it. Whereas Adam Smith in his deathbed, what, reissued another edition, and right? Another so edition. Maybe Revised say, edition, say something about that.
1: Well, yeah, even if you read The Wealth of Nations um, through, people generally don't read primary texts of their discipline, right? They just read a textbook summary of it. But if you actually read it, there's no statement in there that people always behave rationally or always seek their own self-interest. It, you know, it says that if you want to have bread, you're better off relying on the baker's self-interest than on his altruism. Uh, but that, how you get from there to, and therefore there's only self-interest, there's it, it, it no logical Way to get there, and most of the book does not presume that it talk doesn't presume rationality. It Talks about what Smith calls human folly, and the idea that everyone always acts according to their own self-interest was not a new idea. It was the you know the received idea. You have it in Hobbes. You had it in you know the French uh, thinker La Foucault. It was a sort of the basic hard-nosed idea of the 17th and 18th centuries, and Smith set out. To refute it in the theory of moral sentiments. Uh, he knows perfectly well all the arguments for that theory. Um, we don't have any new ones. And he says, no, of course self-interest exists, but there is also uh, in a, what he calls an original passion to help others. And by original passion, he means it's irreducible, so that you can't make the move well, but it's really only selfish to want to help others And he's saying, no, no, there are ways in which it's an original passion. And he gives lots of instances in life where, in fact, any attempt to reduce it to selfishness will simply misfire. And it's a very subtle book psychologically, all the examples um, he gives. Um, So if you actually read The Wealth of Nations in this, you see that self-interest is extremely important. And, you know, people act according to it, but it's not the whole story.
0: So I really like, uh, Saul, as you mentioned, the original passions notion, and when I I was uh, making notes in the book as well, I actually was thinking of Harry Markowitz, who uh, Morty will, will know had made his primary contribution in terms of what he considered Euclidean axioms, which cannot be reduced any further. So if Smith had his original passions... Uh, several hundred years later, two hundred years later, they become almost exactly two hundred years later. They become Harry Markowitz's uh, Euclidean axioms, which define behavior in the exact in mathematical precision. And you know who's to say whose original passions are more original than than uh, the other? But you can't completely mm-hmm. discount one or the other.
2: Well said. Well said. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. The second the second kind of great figure and uh which for all of us as russianists you know gets gets our attention was uh you know using a somewhat popular in kind of college and graduate school uh the metaphor of the hedgehog and the fox uh from Tolstoy uh and using that as another way of kind of balancing human judgment and wisdom versus the mathematical precision of modern economics and rational actor theory and adding i think another layer and you did a brief kind of introduction of how the fox is interested in many things as as a little more flexible and the uh uh, the hedgehog knows just one big thing. But can you, you know, maybe Saul, so go back and explain, I mean, because there are some really powerful intellectual characters here. Isaiah Berlin himself is no slouch, and uh, Tolstoy managed to uh, in, in Berlin's rendering, but also in, in, in War and Peace, uh, Tolstoy creates one of the great kind of minor figures in world literature, and kind of our personal favorite, until you guys debunked it, uh, for me, which is General katuzov who uh, was on the other side of uh, napoleon's battle so I, I think even for economics and finance this understanding of how you guys are interweaving tolstoy in and berlin in makes is, is really important to your argument
1: yeah i mean war and peace is is a very foxy is a very foxy book um the you know they're all tolstoy picks as uh Representative of what we would call all conceivable social science, the science of warfare. He has a lot of generals, mostly Germans, who uh, think that they have a hard science of warfare and can absolutely foresee all contingencies and guarantee an outcome, and they generally lose, the Germans who do this, as uh, opposed to General Kutuzov and some other wise figures who understand that the world is... Filled with contingencies and things that cannot be foreseen, and wisdom consists in orienting yourselves to changing present moments without a hard formula, right? And uh, it's it's a polemic against that view that you can... The conclusion you would draw from War and Peace is that if you're thinking of a social science in the hard sense of science, as many social scientists have, um, there can never be a social science in that sense. There can be a lot of important knowledge you can get about society, but it will not ever become something analogous, let's say, to um, astronomy or, or um, you know, Newtonian mechanics.
0: And that uh, I engage, you know, that's sort of my day job is in working in finance, but coming from the soft side, the assumption that people have that human behavior can be so mechanically uh, forecast and rigidly uh uh, treated in mathematical formulas that, uh, you know, I, I, you know, was very sympathetic to your argument because I live, I live through the consequences of not accepting your argument every day where people say, for simple example, but you told me my expected return was going to be 8.5% over the next 12 months. And that didn't happen, I'm not happy, and so when you when you apply such a rigid formula to human behavior, you're just bound to get disappointment. So uh, thank you, both of you, for for that.
1: Well, think of it. Think of it this way: since you know Newton had such remarkable success uh, in formulating you know planetary laws, the laws of motion. There have been dozens and dozens of people who have claimed they had found the formula for the, for a social science of one sort or another, um, you know, Marx, Freud, countless others have said they had it. And of course, nobody ever has. And they always say, well, then they make until, until
0: Gary Becker, but we'll get to that in a moment. Well.
1: Uh, and they no, I'm make kidding, I'm kidding, predictions yes. and yeah. they say, oh, well, we th- now we can handle that. That is, after the fact, they correct their model so that they can predict what already happened. But that's not – they all make that move and it's not a test because anybody can revise their theory afterwards to predict what did happen. The test is whether you can predict things in advance and none of these um, – sciences all of which seem to have such enormous confidence we've finally done it have ever succeeded um and and yet it doesn't reduce people's confidence that they have at last gotten the true one um you know behaviorism was another one i mean things that are very different from each other all seem to be hard sciences and it that they keep occurring is a testimony to the humanity's failure to learn from its own experience
2: Mm. But it's not just the original thinker saw. I mean, I mean, perfect example is Adam Smith or Darwin, right? right. I mean, there are people who are very right. foxy uh, and as their followers turn them into hedgehogs. Yeah. Right? So it's not just the original thinkers. It's sometimes it's just, they, they would hate the way they are. That's another way to have construed now. Um, Darwin So they're very different from what they, you know, social Darwin. I mean, it just think about what they did to him.
0: So you, you know, Moving, moving to uh, sort of the positive part, you're, you're proposing – you call it – you don't really lead with this as a term, but you do call it uh, humanomics. I'm not certain if I'm going to pronounce it correctly. Humanomics. Humanomics.
2: Uh, well, humanomics. Deidre McCloskey had already used that term. We didn't know when we read no. the, wrote the original thing, but uh, she had already used that term. But it's a good one. Some people call it narrative economics, including Bob Schiller, who, uh, Nobel laureate in economics.
1: Yeah, and Deirdre has done wonderful work that, you know, we really like. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, which is clear in your your footnote. It's not a... Uh, uh, I, I have, have to get to, to her work as well because you're... You, uh, I've seen references to to her work uh, before as to uh, that it's very powerful stuff. But you're basically proposing through humanomics to, as you quote, say, temper the hedgehogism of traditional economics with the foxiness of the great novelist. And then the a the lot of the book is case studies, some of which are just frightening when I thought about it. And I have a... teenage boy who's heading into the college admission uh, mill. And so I read that one really, really closely, but other, a couple others on uh, higher education. Uh, Do you want to show how you think this kind of mismatch of, or too rigorous uh, application of the mechanical model uh, plays out in real life in the case studies that, uh, you know, have uh, really affect people's lives?
2: Well, maybe I'll give one because you mentioned about your child and properly matching, you know, people have recognized for some period of time, there's something called undermatching. So if you look at the people who come from relatively low income, disadvantaged backgrounds, come from high schools that are under resourced, um, you know, a lot of them still manage the top students. Uh, you know, do incredibly well. That's why they're top students. They also do, despite the association between income and certainly race and standardized test scores, do really well in SATs and ACTs. Um, so, we talk about a case study in, in the book of, of Chicago public high school students who manage to do really well uh, in GPA and recommendations and other experiences and standardized test scores. And they can go to your alma mater, Williams, or or, or Saul's alma mater, Yale, or where I work now at Northwestern, and uh, but they don't. Only one out of three avails himself or herself of that opportunity to go to a university of Michigan, or you know, or Cal Berkeley, or you know, a great public or private uh, research university or liberal arts college. And he said, "Why do they undermatch?" And as you know, Daniel, this is something I've been working on my whole career. You know, I do price elasticity as a demand. And I say, OK, if you lower the price enough, this is the increase in demand and all that. But over time, I've come to realize it's more complicated than that. It's not just getting the price down. Um, and there's a sense from literature and I'll turn to Saul in a second that we came up with. It. There's a line in the book that says there's more to feeling that you belong than affordability. Yeah. And so, how do you mm-hmm. learn from literature about how to grapple with undermatching?
1: Well, there's a you know common theme in you know in the great realist novels of the provincial who comes to the capital. You know, Balzac does that one a lot, um, or you know, Great Expectations, Dickens' Great Expectations, comes to a, a, a completely different culture. The difference is not just you know income; it's a cultural difference, what, norms of behavior, values, and the person. Feels you know alienated, uh, laughed at, um, and you know that is part of that experience. And then what happens becomes the, the plot of the novel. Henry James does it. Sometimes it's the American in Europe. Sometimes it's you know the American from the West coming to the East Coast, you know from the provinces to Paris or London. Um, and that's part of what you're encountering. You're a cultural difference, which you're which you're not going to solve simply by lowering the prices. You have to create. Understand the experience, make it more welcome, um, and uh, you know, have it culturally sensitive as well as economically.
0: Indeed, uh, and you know, the uh, uh, for specific college admissions, I I will I'm going to give away <laughs> less the wise judgment than simply. Uh, a technical detail, which is go on a college tour and make sure you sign up. The kid signs in uh, at the admissions office. Is that is, did I get that correct? Uh, y- you read yeah, yeah, a little closely. I'm going to be rereading that one. Yeah. So, uh, but
1: but notice though, by the way, what that's if you sign the guest book, you're more likely to get in, but you're less likely to get financial aid. Yeah, this puts this puts <laughs> one in a real quandary, and, and
2: that's what enrollment management, Daniel, is. You know, it, it's saying okay. Let's be more efficient as even though we're 501c3s, that the, the not-for-profit, not the proprietary for-profit sector, of course. And, and let's try to be more like businesses and, you know, but we're not a business. And, and the way you treat people and the way you use background information that people, uh, we would say, naively give up you know, it doesn't always go to the public good. And that's, that's an example about signing up on the tour. And
0: there, there are others, again, I won't, won't give away all the goods, but, uh, it's, it's not only college admissions. It's also, there is some perverse incentives concerning teaching popularity as to whether you want the, the tenured professor or the, the, the junior professor. And of course, what I think is already well known, but it always bears repeating is that the U S news and, uh, uh, data and surveys are, uh, a, uh, Data nightmare and a behavioral finance nightmare and a human nightmare, and also some of the issues that state uh, legislatures uh, have to confront when they are allocating money to higher education, you do get uh, potentially uh, uh, outcomes that you just wouldn't think about. And uh, that, uh, you know, a, a strict economic approach to those issues creates potentially negative, uh, negative outcomes. So there's a lot of detail in the book. Yeah. Well,
2: that's a good summary. But, but in some cases, it's just like, you know, we give some book talks, people get annoyed and they say, well, what do you do? You gave the example. So we, one of the case studies is what What do you do when you have a public flagship? That's not only the best university in that state, public university in that state, but by definition, but is one of the great ones in the world, like in Madison or in Ann Arbor or in Charlottesville or Chapel Hill. And the state's going down and you realize that the price elasticity demand estimates that I and others have done, show that the most vulnerable populations are at non-selective four-year publics and at two-year public community colleges. So, you know, you don't want that price to go up or those people are not going to go to college. Uh, On the other hand, if you have University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, one of the world's great universities, maybe you should save that flagship. So we don't know the answer, but we tried to put it in in a way that is a little bit more complicated than most economists seem to put it those are questions
1: of values
2: that you have rather than simply you know numbers right indeed
0: and and that's where i think it's a good transition to to some Larger than life hedgehogs. Uh, In my field, it is, uh, there are a number of them, but Merton Miller, uh, who was a colleague of one Gary Becker at the University of Chicago, who is um, a hedgehog of enormous proportions. Uh, I I, I speak purely metaphorically. And uh, can you describe his very uh, stunning claim uh, that put him in? know, having solved a, a universal problem that Comte, Marx and Bentham could not about figuring out human behavior and how that fits into your view.
2: Well, I'll start in the turn. I mean, thank God for Gary Becker, uh, an, an amazing person,
0: and a real just genius. an
2: unbelievably brilliant economist. Genius. And, you know, sometimes they give people Nobel Prizes and some of us in the field say, what? Uh, Not for Becker. He was so good. He won it by himself. And he just had an enormous influence on the field. And it's nice, Daniel, sometimes when people lay out a very clear position. And, you know, we we will always be grateful to Gary Becker for laying out that position. Now, it's easy to criticize a very pure position, and and we do that over and over again with uh, how you pick your friends, and how you pick your spouse, and how you pick this, and whether you should be able to sell body parts like a second kidney, you know, so, you know, we we use him, hopefully not, I hope not as a straw man, but someone, you know, out of incredible respect for me, especially given my field is, uh, you know, I'm no Gary Becker, none of us are, but you know, we've been so influenced by the brilliance of his work, but he's a perfect example of someone where you can say, okay, well, let's put in a little psychology, a little history, a little sociology, a little philosophy, and a lot of literature to take that very pure, brilliant formulation of a Becker model and morph it into something that maybe could be more realistic and provide better policies and fairer policies and maybe is a little less sure of itself and, and maybe, um, you know, could, could make economics even more valuable than it is, but so,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking here, um, you, would, you know, it, you would certainly be better off, um, having, you know, an economist like Gary Becker and then modifying it by a humanist who had could tell stories, new other values, then starting with an English professor and adding an economist to it, you'd certainly be better off that way. Mm. Um, But, you know, the Becker model raises all sorts of questions, you know, in in terms of, you know, accuracy to human behavior, uh, again, ignoring culture, um, contingent events, and uh, it makes – Moral decisions reduces them entirely to economic decisions, and there's always an economic element in those decisions. It's not as if, you know, the way Becker handles moral questions is irrelevant. It's that it isn't the whole story.
2: Yeah, but there's a lot to the economics. There. I mean, I, I don't know if, so if you've been following the mega millions, these enormous lotteries. And I, I was listening to Daniel the other day and it was saying, be careful. What's the curse of the lottery that, you know, you, you win hundreds of millions of dollars or millions, but whatever it is. And then the first thing you do is, you know, you give up your friends, you give up your spouse of longstanding, you know, relationships and You know, that's, you know, we talk at length about that. I mean, that's Becker. You know, the idea is that if you have an unexpected, you know, windfall in wealth or you age better and you're less sick, you look better, you're more vital, whatever it is, you know, that his theory of divorce is that you you recontract because you should have gotten someone. You're more marketable in the market for spouses and you can't deny there is a market for spouses and, you know, you, you trade up. Or if you're not as successful as your, you know, they know Daniel. You have a Williams degree. They infer certain kinds of things about. They look at your parents. They look at your background, and you have a spouse. And if if you disappoint that spouse because you you're under you're under realizing that prediction based on all their initial facts, this is how Becker puts it. Then your spouse dumps you. You're going to refute that, so I mean, there's a lot of truth. To it. It's not that in every case, but Becker agrees there's an error term. Sometimes people stay, and you say, "Why is she staying with this loser?" Well, she loves him, or why, you know, and sometimes, or why dump somebody when everything's going great? Well, they don't love each other, you know. So that's just a classic thing. But we argue in the book that you know literature gives some other understandings into why you have children and why you pick a spouse, why you stay with a spouse. You know, the pure model of the economics of, you know, self-interest leave a lot. And literature, Saul, is beautiful in explaining all those things in an error term that I would argue is a very large error term. And if it's that large, then you then you have reduced predictive power. It might work for some cases, Daniel, but maybe not for the norm. Saul?
1: Yeah, the, the expression, well, you know, love is in the error term, as if the error term was just a minor. But suppose the error term is 95% of the story. I mean, you know, um, then, well, it would still be true that, you know, in some respects, you could use a market model because it would have some predictive power if it was only 5% of the story. And you wouldn't want to get rid of that predictive power. And I suspect it's more than 5% of the story, but it's very far from...
0: So let me also say just without giving away, uh, you know, uh, Gary Becker is very interesting, but he's not very well known outside of uh, economics. Uh, Jared Diamond is I think we'll save it for the readers. But basically, you do cast uh, Jared Diamond as also a hedgehog, very interesting hedgehog with a kind of single solution. Explains everything, and and you you know pick away at that. To uh, uh, and I think in a very interesting case because I think again, uh, Diamond is 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 quite uh, wide known. Let me let me kind of move towards wrapping up by pointing out after uh, a delightful forty minutes of uh, beating up on economists, you do, and I say that with a PhD in history and and working in finance, but that you do make the appropriate you know, uh, make time at the end to say that humanists have been poor at making their case despite having, you know, outstanding material insight and judgment into ethics Uh but they, they have not, they've kind of lost the battle. I mean, the, the undergraduates uh you know think that the road to wisdom is through through finance models, not not reading Tolstoy. And uh can you can you you know suggest how we need to make humanomics or at least the humanities uh, uh more meaningful to people thinking about these these interactions?
2: Well let me start it off quickly and then turn it over to Saul, who said one of the most famous, brilliant humanists in the, on the planet. But, you know, we, we, Daniel, you picked up on something. We talk about how economics can learn from the best of the humanities. And sometimes, just like economics isn't always the best version of itself, uh, sometimes the humanities are not the best version of themselves, and um, that's something that we we go in and saw. obviously uh, went on and wrote most of that chapter, and it's a pretty, I would say stinging critique of the evolution of the humanities. And you alluded to the fact that we have some data in there. The percentage of humanities majors has gone down and on and on and on. And, you know, some people blame the customer and they say, oh, they don't have attention spans. They're only greedy and all that. And it was actually Saul has a great line in the book and says, you know, when you have to change, when you have to blame the customer's bad taste, why no one's buying your product you got a problem and Saul tries to articulate it's not ubiquitous perhaps but there there's a strand of modern the humanities that uh is shooting himself in the foot you believe Saul right well
1: it doesn't really believe in itself I mean the very to say that you know well you want to teach great literature is already to make a controversial statement that there is such a thing as great literature because you know for over 30 years, uh, the orthodoxy has been that value is entirely contingent upon power relations. And there is no such thing as great literature in itself. Um, so if, if that's true, why are we paying humanists to, to teach it? And in fact, they are not teach it. They very often teach things called cultural studies or, or you know, works that are not particularly great. And they teach them in a way that students find isn't worth the effort to read. And most of my students, you know, have come to the class, uh, taught literature in a way that if that's all literature had to offer, I wouldn't read it either. Um, <laughs> but that, it, and then spark notes. they used to be called way.
0: cliff notes in my day. They're called apparently spark notes. Now that's, uh, yes, that's learned. right.
2: The world has evolved. Daniel
1: from cliff to spark has been progress, but no, not really. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and you really need, you know, if we're talking about literature, you really need literature teachers who understand literature uh, and love literature. And there isn't any substitute for that. Uh, you know, and whereas the rewards in the field, you know, for the past 30 years have gone to people who did not believe that and to other ideologies, which created a really interesting phenomenon that the theories that would get you advanced in the field, that would lead to progress and honors in the field, were precisely those theories which would reduce the importance of the field itself, uh, which is a a very interesting sociological phenomenon, because all the incentives then become to reduce the importance of the field.
0: Uh, with, in favor of looking at, as you said, the power relationships behind and you're back to sort of uh, a uh, more of an economic argument, which is rigid and not particularly subtle or, or filled with good judgment and wisdom, at least in my take. Uh, exactly. Let's let's uh, I think we'll wrap it up here. Uh, I. I, I this is, again, a very ambitious book. I don't know how the University of Chicago has responded to it. I don't know how the humanities faculties have responded to it. But if you're successful, I think they'll both be furious with you, and that'll be a sign of of success. I certainly encourage everyone to, to read this book. It's, it's really uh, quite eye-opening, and not only if you have a child uh, entering uh, the college admissions process. Uh, can you gentlemen do you want to describe where what your current projects are? are they follow on, are they continuing with this? I know you you the your preface, your new preface to this book was very interesting because you were able to incorporate uh, initial reactions uh, to to the book. Uh, is the future work continuing along these lines?
2: Well, you know, I I think Daniel, we both do other things too. You know, Saul does his literary criticism and all his things, and I continue to have along with some co-authors much more technical journal articles in my field, you know, applied econometrics, labor economics. But I love working with Saul. We had edited a book before that also came out for, from this course on can you predict the future? And we got we asked some of our friends to write chapters about the future of healthcare and the future of media and the future of governments and religion and all. And that was a lot of fun. And a number of people have approached us because this book's done pretty well. It's got some decent reviews in the new yorker and wall street journal and many other uh venues and they said you know write a follow-up and one follow-up can be not what economics can learn from the humanities but what the humanities can learn from economics so we're thinking a little bit about that nice. yeah,
1: exactly. we're thinking
2: about other projects it's just one of the joys of my life to be able to teach and to write with my friend saul and Amen. until he dumps me i'm gonna keep signing up for another one saul
1: well, I feel the same way. Until he dumps me, I'll I'm <laughs> keep signing up. So.
2: <laughs> I'm glad you two get along. Uh, <laughs> uh,
1: yes. We learn a lot from each other. I certainly sort of learn a lot probably – well more about economics than I even imagined I could, you know. So.
0: Well, very good. Uh, the, the work is available through the standard uh, networks, including uh, Amazon, of course. I, I want to thank you, uh, Professor uh, Gary Saul Morson and uh, Professor Morton Shapiro, for sharing your thoughts on uh, Sense and Sensibility. And uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you again. Thank,
2: thank you, you, Daniel. It great so fun. Much. Thank you.